0: Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. In the mid, early to mid 1500s, Scotland was under the complete control of the Catholic Church. In fact, the Catholic Church owned more than half of the real estate in Scotland and they were getting extremely wealthy off of the rents that they were charging the citizens of Scotland. But the teachings of Martin Luther and the Reformation that was taking place in Germany is was making its way through Europe and finally made it into Scotland and was influencing many people who were finally seeing the truth of the Bible after many years of seeing what the popes wanted them to see and not understanding these things. So many people came to Saving Faith and there was a growing group of Protestants there and uh, as that number rose, so did the conflicts between the Catholic Church that ran the country and the Catholic rulers of that land, as well as the Protestants there. Among those who were impacted by the teachings of Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation was a young man in his early 30s named George Wishart. He became an itinerant preacher preaching all over Scotland during that time, and in 1544, he was preaching salvation alone through faith alone in Christ alone, speaking out against the, the false teaching of the popes and the Catholic Mass, and they were so unhappy with him that they tried on multiple occasions to kill him. So many so it became necessary for Wishart to get a bodyguard, and another young man in his early thirties became Wishart's bodyguard, and his name was John Knox. Two years later, in 1546, Wishart was arrested by Archbishop of St. Andrews, Cardinal Beaton. They took Wishart into custody, they abused him, they choked him, and then they burned him at the stake. The leading Protestant leaders in Scotland got together and they said, we need someone to stand to the gap that was created by Wishart's death. And they were unanimous and they all looked at John Knox and said, he needed to be the one. So John Knox took up the mantle and began to boldly preach the gospel, and he thundered against the false teaching of the Catholic Church that was keeping people in subjection to this idea of salvation by works. And within a year, unsurprising, Knox was arrested. He was sentenced to slavery as a rower in one of the large galley ships for the French Navy. It's uncertain how, but after 19 months of slavery in these ships, he was able to escape or was set free somehow. He went from there to Geneva, where he met up with John Calvin, was influenced by his teaching, and and then eventually back to Scotland, where he would continue to preach, and the fire was burnt hotter than ever in Knox's life, and he would preach strong, unapologetic messages. He would thunder away at the point of the gospel and, and was summoned on multiple occasions to appear, to appear before the Catholic monarch of Scotland, Mary Queen of Scots. He was respectful but he never backed down, even bringing her to tears on more than one occasion. And for the rest of his life he gave himself to the Reformation of Scotland. Boldly proclaiming Christ, earning him the name, the thundering Scott. The years of ministry, though they were relatively short, less than 25 years of ministry. At age 58, John Knox died. And he was buried in the graveyard of St. Giles Cathedral in England. It strikes me because I turned 58 in a few weeks. And if we had a graveyard here, well... Be bad At his funeral on November 24th, 1572, it's reported that James Douglas said, quote, here lies a man who neither flattered nor feared any flesh, end quote. That quote has been variously reported. That one seems to be the most accurate, uh, but others have quoted it as, here lies a man who never feared the face of anyone. The fear of man is a problem that needs to be dealt with and it's a problem that most of us struggle with at one time or another. The fear of man has silenced many Christians, kept them from proclaiming the truth of Christ, kept them from sharing the gospel with someone else for fear of what that person might say or do or the rejection they might experience. Many servants of God have succumbed to the fear of man and cowardice in the face of human opposition. Someone at their school or work or family is bold in their agnosticism or atheism and many Christians have felt that pressure to keep their mouth quiet. Even Peter, the apostle, gave in to the fear of man. He was bold so many times. He was the spokesman for the 12. He spoke up on other times when nobody else would seem to speak up. And then there was that day when Jesus was arrested and Peter kind of followed from afar and kind of tried to sneak in and listen to what was being said at the trial before Annas and Caiaphas. And when Peter was recognized, he denied knowing Christ. In fact, three different times with three different people. He denied he even knew who Jesus was. Jesus knows the threat that those who follow him will face. He knew that when he said it, when he gives the instructions here in chapter 12. He knows what people are going to face. He knows that some of his followers will be arrested, some will be beaten, others will be mocked, and others will be killed. He knows that some will suffer verbal abuse while others suffer physical abuse. It's not the type of perks you're looking for when you're thinking about a career. You, know, you can see the want ad, wanted, child of God, abuse, all that you can handle, suffering on demand. You get to carry a cross everywhere you go. Hey, but the retirement plan's out of this world. Knowing how the world is going to treat Christians, followers of Christ, knowing the propensity that most of us have to fear men rather than God, Jesus gives a three-step process to overcoming the fear of man. The first we found in chapter 12, verses 4 through 7, we looked at it last week, it's the fear God, don't fear man. Fear God, don't fear man. Jesus tells us plainly, the worst thing man can do to you is kill you. And after that, they can't do anything to you. And for the Christian, that's really not much of a threat because after that, we just get promoted to heaven. So it's not really that great of a tragedy. In light of eternity, it only makes sense to fear the Lord rather than fearing man. We fear God because he decides who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. It's the only logical choice. That's what the psalmist meant, what Solomon meant when they said, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you have any wisdom, if you have any spiritual intelligence whatsoever, you will start with fearing God. If you start with fearing God, then you can have spiritual intelligence. The opposite of that would be, if you don't fear God, it's utter foolishness. If wisdom, the beginning of wisdom, is to fear God, to not fear God is foolish. The fear of the Lord, the fear of God, is seen throughout Scripture. It was to characterize godly leaders. In Exodus chapter 18, verse 21, God is telling Moses, Furthermore, you shall select out of all the people able men who fear God, men of truth, those who hate dishonest gain, and you shall place these over them as leaders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. The fear of Lord was necessary to the very survival of the people of Israel. In Deuteronomy 6.24, God says, So the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always and for our survival as it is today. The fear of the Lord is to govern the way we treat other people. In Leviticus 25, verse 17, You shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. We should be afraid of how we treat others. If we treat them inequitably, we should fear God. The fear of the Lord drives us to evangelism. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Because we know that everybody is going to appear before God, because we know the fear of God, that's why we tell people about the gospel. The fear of the Lord is connected to obedience to God's commands more than a dozen times. Here's just a couple. Deuteronomy 8.6 Therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God, to walk in His ways and to fear Him. In Deuteronomy 13.4 You shall follow the Lord your God and fear Him. You shall keep His commandments, listen to His voice, serve Him, and cling to Him. The fear of the Lord bring, brings blessings Psalm one forty seven, verse eleven: The Lord favors those who fear Him, those who wait for His loving kindness. And then the lack of fear is a cause of condemnation. Ecclesiastes eight thirteen: But it will not go well, or I'm sorry, it will not be well for the evil man, and he will not lengthen his days like a shadow, because he does not fear God. And then Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This laundry list of the, of the wickedness of men ends with, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Solomon, as the king of Israel and the wealthiest man, in the world at the time and the wisest man in the world searched for meaning to life in every way he could possibly fathom there was nothing that he could keep from his desires and he would go to he would spare no expense to accomplish whatever it is that he wanted to accomplish all in the search of meaning of life and when it was all over he summed up in ecclesiastes chapter 12 verses 13 and 14 the conclusion when all has been heard is Fear God and keep His commandments. Because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to to judgment. Everything which is hidden, whether it's good or evil. We must fear God, not man. The second step is found in verses 8 and 9. Proclaim Christ, don't fear man. Proclaim Christ, don't fear man. Verse 8 and I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him also before the angels of God. Genuine confession of Christ before the world exposes us to the opposition of this world. Possibly persecution. Now for us in the West, it's not a really strong possibility that we're going to suffer real persecution in the west currently most are if any are going to go to jail for preaching christ certainly in current trends most of us are not going to be killed for preaching christ it's not always been true in history and it's not true right now in other parts of the world but when we profess christ we confess christ we tell the general population about christ it does set us up to be persecuted It does set us up to opposition. But it's that confession of Christ that gives evidence that we're saved. It shows that we really belong to Christ, that we're truly regenerated. It was necessary for salvation, and it's necessary for our Christian faith. Romans chapter 8, or chapter 10, rather, verses 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead... You will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. So this confession is only not only necessary for salvation, it's evidence of salvation. 1 John 4, verses 2 and 3, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist of which you have heard is coming and now is already in the world. So for the Christian, we profess, we confess Christ. That is evidence that we're saved. A lack of confession, a lack of profession of Christ is Antichrist. That's what 1 John 4 is telling us. To confess him before man is to make him known, not to keep him hidden. To confess Christ is to be his witness, which is what Jesus said just before ascending into heaven, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and the uttermost part of the world. It's to be honest about your commitment to follow Christ. Observe his commands. To confess Christ before men is to stand with Paul, who said in Romans uh, 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God to everyone who believes to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Listen, in everybody's Christian walk, at some point along the line, put in the right situation, there's this temptation to be ashamed of the gospel. Confession is a, an important part of genuine faith. Matthew chapter five, verse sixteen. Jesus said, "Let your light shine before men, in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven." We are to live out our faith. It's to be lived out loud. It's to be expressed. People are. There shouldn't be any wondering what we believe and whether or not we confess Christ. Con- to confess Jesus Christ before men is to love one another in such a way that they may see our good works and glorify our Father. How we live should be a testimony of the gospel. It should reflect our love for Christ. J.C. Ryle said this, The difficulty of confessing Christ is undoubtedly very great. It never was easy at any period. It never will be easy as long as the world stands. It is sure to entail on us laughter, ridicule, contempt, mockery, enmity, and persecution. The world which hated Christ will always hate true Christians. But whether we like it or not, whether it be hard or easy, our course is perfectly clear. In one way or another, Christ must be confessed. The genuine faith of your heart will always make it to your mouth. Because that which fills the heart overflows from the mouth. If you have genuine saving faith in Jesus Christ, it will come out at some point. And Jesus promises that if we confess Him before men, He confesses us before the angels in heaven, the angels of God. That is what we say about Him on earth is reflected in what He says about us in heaven. Speaking to Christians, in Revelation chapter 3 verse 5, the Bible says, He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name out of the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. These are great promises. Imagine that for a moment. Jesus says, I'm going to share your name with everybody in heaven. I'm going to confess you before my Father and I'm going to confess you before all the angels. I'm going to tell them all about you. As evidence of genuine salvation, we proclaim Jesus Christ. We may suffer the results of that, but we're comforted by the knowledge that as we confess Jesus Christ, He's confessing us in heaven. Jesus affirms our relationship with the citizens of heaven. You ever consider the reality of the fact that Jesus speaks to God the Father about you? In other words, you're not just a number. You're not a number to, to heaven. You're a person. You're an individual whom God knows, whom Christ knows, whom Christ loves, and He tells people about you. Can you imagine? Jesus is standing in heaven, and they're looking down on the earth. And Jesus, you see that man right there? That's Dan. Dan loves me. Dan is a servant of mine. Man, he's generous and he's kind, and he wants people to know about me. And the angels going. And Jesus says, "I can't wait till you get to meet him in person." You see that guy over there? That's Derek darius got a true evangelist heart, man. He he won't be silenced. He wants everybody to know about Christ. I can't wait till you meet him. And maybe one of the other angels says, well, what about that guy over there sitting in church? And Jesus says, that guy? I don't know him. Can you imagine? I can't think of anything greater than to know that Jesus is confessing Our names, those of us who know him, before the angels in heaven. But, verse 9, But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Denying Christ is more than verbally saying that you don't know him like Peter did at the trial of Jesus. People often deny Christ just by their silence. Their refusal to say anything. Their refusal to correct wrongs. Their refusal to give God glory. Others deny Jesus by their actions. Oh, they say they're believers. They say they follow Christ, but their actions say something completely different. They're like the kid who's, Taking the crayons and drawing on the wall, and the parent says, Stop drawing on the wall, and the kid says, Okay. You can say whatever you want. I'm not drawing on the wall. Well, your words say one thing, but your actions say something else. Some people deny Christ by their inaction. They don't do anything. They don't do anything that looks like being a Christian. In fact, if you examine their life from the outside looking in, you wouldn't, there would be nothing that would be a reason for you to think they may be a Christian. Many just deny Him in their hearts. If we don't confess Him before men, that is, we don't make Him known. We pretend like we don't know Him. If your friends or your family have no idea that you're a Christian because you're afraid of what they might say. That's a problem. If we're ashamed to let people know that we are committed followers of Jesus Christ, if we're so afraid of what they'll think or what they'll say or what they'll do if they find out I'm a Christian, I just can't handle that. I just I just can't face that rejection if if our words and our lifestyle deny that we're servants of God. This is denying him before the world. Then he says, Then I will deny them before the angels of God. And the reason is because such a person can't possibly be born again. A person that would deny Christ in this world can't possibly be saved. You can't possibly have the Holy Spirit living in your life, in your heart. The consequences are severe. So severe, Jesus says, I'll deny that person in heaven. Do you know that guy? No, I don't know him. In Luke chapter 9, verse 26, Jesus said, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory, the glory of of the Father and of the holy angels. You know, the day is coming when Jesus is going to divide all of humanity. Some are going to go to his right hand and some to his left. The ones on his right are called sheep and those on the left are called goats and the sheep he will say, enter into the joy of the Lord. Well done, good and faithful servant. And to the goats, he will say, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I never knew you. And there will be many in that group that will say, but Lord, didn't we go to church and didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons and do many wonderful works? And Jesus will repeat it. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I never knew you. but I I went to church. But I memorized verses, but I read the Bible, but I was baptized. I never knew you. Can there be anything worse than hearing that? For Jesus Christ to say of you, I never knew you. A parent could have a baby and abandon that baby on the side of the road with a note pinned to their diaper that says, I never wanted you. And that would be devastating. That would be so hurtful and could scar that child for life. But it's not even worthy to be compared with Jesus saying, I don't know you. Nothing could be worse than that. To deny Christ and be denied by Christ brings with it eternal damnation. I don't know you. This is how serious Jesus is speaking here. If you profess me before men, I'll profess you before the angels of heaven because that's the sign of a true believer. If you deny me before men, I'm going to deny you before heaven. That's not a threat, that's a reality of who's saved and who's not. Rather than hiding our light under a basket because we're afraid of what people might say or what they might do, because the light hurts their eyes, we are to display the light for all to see. We live in a dark state. This particular area of this state is about as dark as it gets. They need light. And don't be fooled. The people of this state, the people of this area will not appreciate the light. But that's what they need. We we have to shine it. We have to, that light has to, emit from our lives and from our church like a lighthouse before their lives are crashed on the stones and they die the fear of man is keeping you from making Christ known please pay close attention to what Jesus said in verse 9 if he denies me before men I will deny him before the angels of God If the fear of man keeps you from ever opening your mouth so that you will never make Christ known, please understand the seriousness of what Jesus is saying. The third step to being a fearless Christian trust the Spirit, don't fear man. Trust the Spirit, don't fear man. First, it's fear God, don't fear man. Proclaim Christ don't fear man. Third, trust the Spirit. Don't fear man. Look at verse 10. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. He starts off with, everyone who speaks against the Son of Man will be forgiven. You can say whatever you want about Jesus, he's saying, and you can be forgiven. In the ministry of Jesus, there were multiple times when people walked away from him. He was up in the Galilee area feeding the five plus thousand plus people with bread and fish. And they enjoyed that and they thought that was great. And the next morning, many tried to find him and to get more free bread. And Jesus told them that what they need to be doing is doing the works of God. And they thought he meant creating bread out of nothing. So they said, Teach us what that is. He said, you have to believe. And as they still wanted more bread, he finally said, I am the bread of life. And in the course of the conversation said, you must partake of my flesh and drink my blood. You must consume me, in other words, in order to be saved. And they said, this guy's crazy. Who can do this? We We can't handle this. And they walked away. Toward the end of Jesus' ministry, there were thousands of people who were traveling from the north and Galilee and marching into Jerusalem, singing, chanting name, uh, praises to Jesus. It's likely some of them were the same people. Even more likely is that morning, that triumphal entry morning when the thousands of people are singing praises to Jesus, it's likely that there were someone in that same group that were later on Friday chanting for his crucifixion as they were flipping and flopping. But then 52 days later, the, crucif- or the day of Pentecost comes. And there were 3,000 people saved on that day, and then several thousand saved a few days later. Before long, there's 10,000 people that are saved in Jerusalem, and it's highly likely that some of those that were chanting for Jesus' crucifixion were among those who received Christ and got saved. Paul was a persecutor of the church when he was still called Saul. He consented to the death of people. He held the coats while they stoned Stephen to death. Persecuted church had people thrown in prison, yet he becomes from a great persecutor of the church to one of its most ardent spokesmen. So Jesus saying, you can say whatever you want about me, it'll be forgiven. None of those people could outsend God's grace. None of you can outsend God's grace. Whatever it is in your life that is, that you think disqualifies you from saving faith, you're wrong. It can be forgiven. Remember what Jesus said while he was hanging on the cross, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. And Jesus never prays in any way that is outside of the will of God, so his Prayer there for those people who are crucifying him to be forgiven was within the will of God. Even killing God's son could be forgiven. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. This is often referred to as the unpardonable sin or the unforgivable sin. And over the years, on more than one occasion, somebody's come to me very distraught and said to me, Pastor, I... I think I've committed the unpardonable sin. And my initial response usually is, if you're concerned that you've committed the unpardonable sin, you probably didn't commit the unpardonable sin. Because the fact that you're concerned about it means that the Holy Spirit is working on you, which means you didn't commit the unpardonable sin. And then we can go on from there. So what is the unforgivable sin or unpardonable sin? Well, Jesus tells us here, it's blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Clear? That good? Everybody good? Alright, let's move on. I'll explain the Trinity next. It's three and one. Well, what is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? The fact that there are various answers given by good and godly men should clue us in to the fact that it's not an easy thing to determine what it is to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, but here's a few of the ideas. One says it's to attribute the work of God to Satan. The the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is seeing God's work, saying that is Satan's work. And that idea comes about because in Matthew and Mark's account of this, Jesus cast the demon out of the man. The Pharisees say he did that by Satan. And Jesus then in short order launches into If you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you've committed the unpardonable sin. So they attributed the work of God to Satan. Jesus, they are saying, says you've committed the unpardonable sin. Luke separates the two by more than 30 verses. In a technical sense, though, attributing the work of God to Satan would not be blaspheming the Holy Spirit, it would be blaspheming God. Or blaspheming Jesus, one of the two. Not necessarily the Holy Spirit. And then you can ask the question, well, what about those who were just influenced strongly by the Pharisees and they really had no idea they were doing this out of ignorance. They were relying on their religious leaders to tell them what is true and what is not true and, and, and they made a mistake out of ignorance but like Paul who was a Pharisee and didn't believe the gospel and didn't believe the things that he heard about Christ and thought this is a, a sect that needs to be destroyed. Closely related to that view, this the second view says, blasphemy of the the Holy Spirit is done by someone who knows Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah and attributes his power to Satan anyway. The assumption is the Pharisees and the scribes that were there knew that Jesus was the Messiah. They didn't have any question about it. They were convinced he was the Messiah. He had the credentials. He showed it by his power, but they still denied the power and attributed it to Satan. They did this out of hatred for Christ and for no other reason. A third view is that to blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to deny the special revelation that was being revealed at that time. In other words, that situation was unique. Jesus was there in person. He was speaking to them in person. They were face to face with him. They were watching him per- to perform miracles in real time. And they rejected it there and attributed it to Satan. Therefore, they have committed the unpardonable sin. If that view is true, it cannot be committed today. It's impossible for anybody today to commit the unpardonable sin because you can't reduplicate that situation. There's a fourth view that I think is stronger than the rest. And that is to reject the Holy Spirit's testimony concerning Jesus as Lord To the point of death. Rejecting the Holy Spirit's testimony in your life, in your heart, in your mind, that Jesus is Lord and you do that until you die. To deny the Spirit's testimony and then die in your sin is a sin that cannot be forgiven because it's too late, you're dead. You can't be forgiven after you die. Let me give you some scripture that helps with this. Hebrews chapter 6 verses 4 through 6. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him in open shame. In other words, once the Holy Spirit has revealed to you truth shown you the truth of God's Word, shown you who Christ is, and you reject that and say, I don't want that, there's no other option for you. There's no other plan for you. There's no other means of repentance for you. That is it. If you reject Christ as the means of salvation, there's no other opportunity. Those who have been enlightened by the Holy Spirit as to who Christ is, heard the offer of forgiveness and grace and mercy, and denied it, rejected it, cannot be saved because there's no other way to be saved. It's like the person saying, yeah, I hear your interpretation of Christianity. I don't believe that. I'm waiting for something else. I'm not taking that train. I'm going to wait for the next train. There's no other train coming. You take the Jesus train, or you don't get there. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 29, continue the thought, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who trampled underfoot the Son of God and regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? It's the same argument. You hear about Christ, you hear about the sacrifice of Christ, the Spirit has made that clear to you, and you say, I don't believe that. I don't believe that I need the shed blood of Jesus Christ to forgive my sin. I'm going to wait for something else. I'm going to wait for a burning in the bosom and something else. I'm going to wait for some other sign from heaven. He says the only thing you have to wait for is the terrifying expectation of judgment. Because either you receive Christ and you are saved or you don't receive Christ and you're lost. Well, what if I was raised to believe something else? You better receive Christ before it's too late. You have Christ and you have eternal life, or you don't have Christ and you have eternal death. To reject the gospel as a means of salvation and die in that state is a sin that cannot be forgiven. You can be forgiven for ignorance in this life, but you cannot be forgiven after you die in your rejection of Christ. There's only one way to be saved. Confess Jesus Christ as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. There's no other option. Wait it as long as you want. Try everything you want. That, there is nothing left. That is the only means. Those who have been saved and trust the Holy Spirit... Jesus tells them what to do when the persecution comes, back in Luke 12, verses 11 and 12. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not worry about what you will are to speak. Um, don't worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you are to say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Jesus knows that after he leaves that the... the Scribes and the Pharisees and others who run the synagogues will draw, grab Christians and bring them before them. And this isn't for tea and cookies. This is to threaten them. This is to intimidate them. This is to accuse them. This is to declare them to be heretics so they can take them out and stone them to death. And Jesus says, you don't have to worry about what you're going to say. In other words, you don't have to have a, a, a list of excuses or arguments against the The Pharisees at that moment that you just stuck in your toga in case they bring you before them and you can pull it out and answer their questions. He's saying you gotta trust the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's gonna give you the words that you need at that moment. Now some have used this verse as an excuse not to study. It doesn't work. I can't tell you how I know that. But it doesn't work. I've heard preachers say, I don't yeah, I don't ever put together a message. I just stand up and trust the Holy Spirit to give me what to say when I need it. Um, don't, don't, don't. That's a bad idea as well. That may work once in a while. And I've had occasions where uh, I've been asked to preach a service with as much as 10 minutes warning and didn't have any notes with me. So I'd grab a piece of paper and turn to a passage and that I know well and write down an outline and just trust the Lord to give me the words at that moment. And I think those are different different um, times that that works. But in general, we're to prepare things. We're to study. We are told, we're commanded, study to show yourself approved unto God. A workman that does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So we are to study. And then as... A pastor, I am to teach. And if I'm teaching something, the implication is you are learning something. So you're studying in a sense. You're gathering information. You're learning things. In fact, Paul told the church at Ephesus that of the gifts that God has given to the church, he gave pastor teachers. So that is part of our job is to teach one another. Paul labored to teach people. So learning, studying is good and right to do. In this particular instance, he's saying, hey, when you get called in as part of this persecution, you don't need to worry about what defense. You just need to trust the Holy Spirit at that moment. And he's going to give you what to say. And we saw that in, in Acts. We see the, that uh, Peter and John are called before the, the council and threatened and told not to preach Christ. And they go ahead and preach in that council. And give good wisdom there. The Holy Spirit gave them that message. Jesus knows the pressures, the problems, the persecutions that His children are faced. He knows what's going to happen in your life if you proclaim Christ. He knows what will happen in friendships should you tell Christ. He knows what will happen in your family should you stand up for Christ there. He knows what's going to happen in your neighborhoods if you proclaim Christ. He understands. He tells us how to navigate the turbulent waters that we live in. And we are going to choose, we're going to fear something. We're going to fear man or we're going to fear God. And Jesus says here, choose to fear God. Because that's where the wisdom is. And that's where the power is. Fear God. Proclaim Christ. And trust the Holy Spirit. Let God do His work. Even in fearful people like you and me. That are often silenced by our fear of what men will say or do. Let's fear God more than we fear men. Let's proclaim Christ rather than being afraid of men. And let's trust the Holy Spirit. Rather than being afraid. We can be fearless Christians. And we can live for Christ. And we don't have to be afraid of men. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that we can know You, that we can live in the power of Your Holy Spirit, that Father, we don't need to be afraid of what men say or do. Father, we've, many of us have experienced the rejection of men Maybe we've had people be angry at us or maybe even threaten us. Father, we think of our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world whose lives are in danger when they proclaim the gospel. We think of those brothers and sisters in Greece who are under threat of law should they tell the gospel to somebody under 18. Father, we pray for bravery, courage, for brothers and sisters that are facing death, persecution, prison, for their proclamation of the gospel. And Father, may we be men and women that don't fear men. But Father, we fear God. We fear You. We proclaim Christ and we trust Your Spirit. Father, let us live out our faith. Let us recognize that we are the light of the world. And this part of our world so desperately needs the light. Father, let it emanate from this church. Let the light blaze from here and from its members. And uh, Father, those who come to this church, may they shine so brightly in their proclamation of the truth that others may see our good works and glorify you. Come to saving faith. Father, may we love people enough to tell them about you so they don't go to hell in silence, in our silence. Father, maybe there's somebody here that is not saved. Father, it's evidenced by their denial of you. Lord, may you, may your spirit open up their eyes today and they come to saving faith. Father, may it be that no one here will ever hear the words, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness, for I never knew you. Father, may all who are here one day hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Father, you know the hearts. I pray that your spirit will bring about conviction where that is needed, comfort where that's needed, courage where that's needed. And Father, I pray that you would glorify yourself in all that you do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.